If you have a Bible with you, let's turn to Hebrews chapter 4. We're going to continue our way through. Uh, in some ways, it's a bittersweet Sunday because um, we're going to be praying for some families that have become very near and dear to us. Uh, you know, there's that scene in the Gospels where John shows up with Mary, the mother of Jesus, and they're standing at the foot of the cross, and you know, Jesus, even in his own suffering and pain, looks down at them, and he says to John, behold your mom, and to his mom, he says, behold your son. And this phrase that we have, that scene uh, has become a phrase for us uh, over the years, that families are made at the foot of the cross. And, um, and so this, uh, this Sunday, so the condoms are going to be taken off, um, heading to Virginia. So we want to pray for Mike and, and Alex, and then also the Steinbergs, who I think are sitting out in the lobby area, so Tim and Angel who uh, we got to marry. They, you know, they were singles, and the Lord brought them together uh, with us. But um, Tim's getting out of the military. I think he's going to join the Department of Forestry. But anyways, we're going we're gonna to pray for these guys as well. We love you. We miss you. We're paying you back. Yeah. <laughs> but Hebrews chapter 4, uh, we're going to look to finish out the chapter, verses 14, 15, 16. So three verses. And I took our title really just from the beginning there, chapter 14, our great high priest. So if you're there, I'm going to invite you to stand with me, please, in honor of God and his word. I'll read aloud from my Bible. You can follow you know, quietly from yours. I, sometimes we have different translations. I get it. Um, so I'm reading from the New King James, right? Um, sometimes people ask me. We're told, seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, it's a very curious phrase, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. And we're told, because we do not, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted just as we are, and yet Jesus is without sin. Here's a great application. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may find mercy and grace to help in our time of need. And praise the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this morning. And Lord, thank you that we, we have you as our great high priest. Our Savior, our God, our Lord, our Jesus who knows us and cares for us and helps us, who gives us this tremendous privilege of prayer to come into your presence. Lord, thank you. And Father, we thank you for the many blessings that you give us, Lord. Mercies that are new every morning, forgiveness for our sins, wisdom when we need it, grace when we need it. Lord, you're so good to us. And we thank you, Lord, for relationships. Lord, for the, the earthly relationships of, of mothers. And God, I, I pray, you know, sometimes Mother's Day can be a hard day for some. We lift up those moms to be that are holding on to a heaven's hope of a child. We pray you'd bless them. Lord, open their womb in your perfect timing. And Father, just uh, may they experience your grace today. Lord, we pray for those moms that have a child or children in heaven, those who uh, they've graduated ahead of the rest of us, Lord. And so we pray special comfort for them. And, and Lord, that your presence would be ever so tangible in their life today. 
And Lord, for some of us, myself included, we pray for the children who have moms that are in heaven. Lord, we, we pray that the blessing of our moms would be just in the memory and the things that we treasure in our hearts. Lord, thank you that you comfort, that you're good. And Lord, we also thank you for the relationships with the Steinbergs, the Condens. We love them so much. We're going to miss them greatly. But Lord, we trust they belong to you. And God, you have a, just great plans for them and their new places to live and community and the church and Lord, just all of it. And so by faith, we just say thank you for these families, how you'll take care of them. And Lord, we'll, we rejoice with them in faith as they, uh, they depart this week. Give them favor in their travels. Our time in your word, Lord, speak to our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Take a moment, say hello. You can wave, smile through your eyeballs. Chanel, do we have more Sundays with you? One more. Jason, I just realized. How many more Sundays with you? Is this your last Sunday? Yeah. Four? Okay. Phew. All right. I don't like PCS season. All right. You ever had that experience where you, you know someone, you interact with them in a certain context, a certain place, and you're just familiar with that, and then all of a sudden you... You see them somewhere else, or you interact with them somewhere else, and, and it's kind of an odd experience, right? Because you're so used to them seeing them only in, at work or only, you know, in certain places, and then you see them somewhere else, you're like, hey, that, I, I think the first time we have that kind of my world's colliding experiences, uh, or at least if you're like me, it was in school. I remember the first time I saw my teacher outside of a classroom, you're like, what are you doing here? You know, like, as though teachers don't have any kind of life outside of a classroom, right? It's like the first time our little minds are kind of blown. Whoa, my teacher's here, you know. That happens to me with a, a number of you. Sometimes, you know, I, I see you here. This is the context which I see you. You're casual. You got flip-flops on, right? No socks. And then maybe, I, you know, we'll do lunch or I'll see you on, you know, out at your workplace. And then you're just, you know, you're in a suit. You look different. You're in a uniform. And sometimes I feel like I got to stand up straighter, you know, maybe salute you. And it's just weird for me sometimes to see people outside of this context. And of course, for me, my sinful brain, I always want to mess with the coworkers, like, hey, is that person nice? Do they, do they use bad words at work? You know, and you can tell me I'm the pastor, you know, just to mess with them. I think lately for me, where my, my worlds have collided or just, I'm, you know, my brain's messed with a little bit is, uh, even as I think about how God's been raising up Alex, you know, I've known Alex and Jess since they were in middle school. And in fact, even a whole group of uh, our leaders today, Josh and Anna and Dylan and even Azer, some of these guys, I've known them since they were little kids. Uh, Yoko, who's translating uh, today, I mean, her kids who are now adults and Luke has kids of his own, I've known them since they were in like elementary, actually preschool. And so it, it's, it's weird, right, to see them in a different context. These kids who, for me, I just, they're just perpetual youth group. In fact, I still call them kids sometimes, and then I see them, and yet now they're married. Uh, they're having babies of their own. I feel like, man, babies having babies, you know. <laughs> and it's just been a little bit of, like, mess with my head, but also makes me feel a little bit old at the same time, you know. 
And so when we see people that we're you know, used to out of context, you get to see them in a new light, right? in a new way. And, and it broadens our appreciation for them. Right? It broadens our respect. You're like, oh, look at them. They're in a, you know, their, uh, their role that they have or uh, the relationships now they, they've developed with others. And you know, some of you have the experience where your own kids now have kids. Right? And now you get to see your kids in a new, whole new broad you know, aspect of now your kids are parents. Um, or some of us, you know, our kids who are now getting married and these things. And uh, it just you know, broadens our appreciation and broadens our respect and admiration for them. And I share that to say in many ways the writer of Hebrews is, is wanting to do that for the reader, us, with Jesus. To bring us into this place Uh, similar to that, you know, to see Jesus in a new context, although I would say in a greater way, that we would have a greater wonder, a greater sense of appreciation and admiration for Jesus to see this this growing dimension of who he is. Of course, we, we know him, and hopefully you know him as your Lord and Savior. And the great paradox of our faith is that once we come to know him, we still pursue him. The dimensions of our Savior and the aspect of our Christ, it's never-ending, right? It's, a, it's this lifelong, eternal journey of discovery of who Christ is. And we get to then stand before Him, if you will, in wonder and admiration of adoration. And hopefully that's increasing in your life. See, the writer has already told us how Jesus, he, you know, he, he points to Christ and he says, Christ is greater than the angels. Christ is greater than the prophets of old. Most recently in our text, we've heard the writer say, Christ is even greater than Moses, greater than the sacrificial system, greater than Joshua, in fact. And I mean, these were personalities and people that the Jewish um, you know, people would revere. They were patriarchs of their faith. They were the founding fathers of their nation and the and these systems that God had established with the priesthood and the sacrifice system that was all foundational for their worship life, but really their life in general, all of it was built on that. And yet the writer wants to demonstrate that as great as those people were, and as great as that system was, Jesus is far, far greater than that. Far greater than any person, any system. And, and I've shared with you before why he's doing this, because what we understand, what comes through, it's peppered throughout the scripture, is that these um, believers who were Jewish believers were experiencing persecution from their own family and their own friends and their community. And so they were being tempted to go back, if you will, to the old life to say, you know what, yeah, I don't know about this relationship with Jesus thing and him as the Messiah. Let me go back to a system that I grew up in. And so the family, their neighborhood, right, their, their, their high school buddies were like, why are you going to go that way? You need to come back. And, and it was, I mean, it was heavy persecution. In fact, history tells us that if you, you were a person that would, in a sense, leave the Jewish faith, if you became a follower of Christ, you know, believing that Jesus was the Messiah, they'd actually hold a funeral for you and treat you as no more. And so the writer is pleading with them to consider the inadequacy 
and the insufficiency of the old life. And don't return to the old things. Don't drift away from what you have found. That only true fulfillment and satisfaction and sufficiency is found in a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And of course, that truth still remains today. Sometimes we're tempted to go back to our old life, whatever that might have been. Because we encounter hardships and difficulties as Christians. Listen, I I hope no one ever promised you that the Christian life was going to be a life of ease or comfort. Uh, I'd almost say on the contrary, we're, we're promised to have difficulty. In this life, you will have persecution. In this life, you will have tribulation. The promise of Jesus is, though, I've overcome that, right? He'll be with us. He'll see us through. And so sometimes even us, we're tempted. And so what does the writer do? The writer comes back to this picture that he's pulled out for us before to say, consider Christ in this way. Oh, he's greater than the angels. He's greater than the prophets. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than Joshua. He's greater than Aaron. Let's consider him once again as our high priest. Now, he's he's pulled out this picture before back in chapter 3. Actually, back even in chapter 2, but in chapter 3, verse 1, he would say, Therefore, holy brethren, consider your heavenly calling and consider our apostle and the high priest, Jesus Christ, of our confession. And now, from there, he goes on to focus in on some various parts of that, but he hasn't gotten lost. You know, sometimes when I'm talking, I'll get lost. Like, what was I talking about? The writer didn't get lost. It seems as though he kind of took the scenic route to talk about uh, the importance of God's rest in us, trusting in the Word of God. Those are all important things, but he comes back to the point he wants to make here in verse 14, that Jesus is our great high priest. And by the way, he's going to develop that theme. It's a central theme of the book of Hebrews. Christ is our high priest. And he's going to talk about more aspects of that and kind of dig in deep from from here to chapter 5 and even pushing in all the way to chapter 10. So be prepared. This is going to be a theme that we will continue to consider and, and hopefully again, we'll grow in a greater admiration of our Lord. Jesus is unique in his priesthood. And so for our time this morning, I want to give you our outline ahead of time. You ready? So three things, kind of the classic three-point sermon is just this. We want to consider the person of Christ. What does this text tell us about who Jesus is? We want to consider the position of Christ. Those, those go hand in hand, who he is in a sense of what has God called him to do and what is an aspect in which we relate to him. And then thirdly is really the application. We get to consider then our privilege. In light of who he is, in light of what he's done, what does that mean for you and for me today? And what does God want us to, what does God want us to do with that information? All right, you guys good? So, verse 14 Number one, we want to consider the person of Jesus Christ. We're told that seeing then we have, and notice that it's we have, possessive, we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Now, all throughout the Bible, we get to see these various pictures of Christ. We get to see him in different contexts. 
who he is and how he relates, the things that he says, the things that he does. And even from the Old Testament through the New Testament, there's these different titles and descriptors. In fact, there are Bible studies that are you know, framed on all the various ways in which Jesus is described. And, and it's, re- it's a really neat study. I encourage you sometime to run through the various ways in which the Lord is described. We don't have time this morning. I'll just give you a few. Maybe it'll get your own mind going a little bit. You know, he is called our Lord. He's also called the Logos, John chapter 1, the Word of God. He's the line of Judah. He's a master. He's our teacher. He's called Rabbi. The Bible says he is a friend of sinners. He's the Son of God, the Son of Man, the Son of David. He's the morning star. He's Emmanuel, God with us. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the author, the perfecter, the finisher of our faith. John says, Jesus is the bread of life, the light of the world, living water. He's our rock, our redeemer. And there are over a hundred different titles and descriptors of Jesus. And each of those in themselves is just this treasure chest that you can plunge in deeply to consider the, the just worthy of consideration and really worthy of adoration of praise. And, and one such picture that's deep, it's its own treasure chest, is the picture of him as a priest, of our great high priest. Now let me give you a little bit of a background. Now the priesthood for the Jewish people was very important. It was a very important part of their, their worship life, their, their civil life, um, you know, something that God had instituted for them as a nation. Now, when we read these things, please understand that in some ways the text uh, assumes an awareness that sometimes we may not have. And so I want to repeat something that I told some of you when you are with us when we began this book. And that is, if you and I really want to make the most of our time in the book of Hebrews, uh, we have to take some time to go back back to the Old Testament, the first five books of the Bible, often referred to as the Pentateuch, and read, or in some cases, we have to reread those chapters in those books. I want to encourage you to do that if you haven't done that, because it helps us set this wonderful framework. It helps us set this foundation of of a background so that we can then fully understand, and I would even say greater appreciate what the writer is trying to show us. I'll put it in today's Language hopefully doesn't, you know, it doesn't get lost. Anybody here Star Wars fans? Right. For, first service, everyone was a Star Wars fan, but uh, Yoko is a big Star Wars fan. Anyways, if you're a Star Wars fan, if you're familiar with Star Wars, you know there are several movies, and I think the last one's Episode Seven. Is that correct? No. Oh, what's the last one? Nine. Nine sorry. See, I don't even know. I'm more Star Trek. Anyways, so. I'll just use episode seven, even though there's nine. Anyways, if you, if you watch the seventh or the eighth or the ninth one, um, if you watch those ones in themselves, right, you'll get some of it. You realize, okay, there, there's this thing going on, and you can track most of the movie. But if you haven't watched the previous movies, you're going to miss out on a whole dimension, right? You're going to miss out on a whole other level of what's going on. And you might then bug the person you're watch, watching with, like, who's that person? What's that robot? What are they doing, right? They're going to tell you, like, oh, leave me alone. Go in the other room and watch the other ones. 
Listen, do yourself a big favor and go back and read Bible episode one, two, three, four, and five. It'll help you appreciate this. Now, when you go back, what you'll read is that God chose a special people, one family out of the 12, to be then servants to serve the rest of the families. And in order for you to then be a priest, that you had to be part of that family. You had to have the right genes, Levi genes, right? Just make sure you're awake. Okay, you had to be part of the family of Levi. And... And amongst then the priests, if you wanted to be part of the high priest, the only way that you could do that is you had to be related to Moses' brother Aaron. Okay? Aaron was the first high priest. God said, I'm going to pick your brother. God anointed him. And then God said, it's the sons of Aaron. And since there's this term called the Aaronic okay, priesthood, that only the sons and grandkids, you know, and so on and so forth. Only the line of Aaron can be priests. Now, later on in chapter 5, we're going to read about how Jesus is greater than Aaron, even in his priesthood, and that the priesthood of Jesus is a unique priesthood, that it supersedes the Aaronic priesthood. Uh, Now, one big difference that we can understand right away, the difference between Aaron and Jesus, is that Aaron was, and I don't mean to be irreverent, so please forgive me, but Aaron was just a regular dude. Okay? He's just a normal vato like the rest of them. He's a regular guy. And yet God did call him. God did anoint him. God did give him special clothes and said, hey, I want you to have this special function. But at the end of the day, Aaron gets in line to make atonement for his sins, just like everybody else got in line to make atonement for their sins. Because he's a sinner. Again, yes, he's the high priest. And yes, God called him. But he is not the great high priest. No one claims that title. Only Jesus does. And only Jesus is unique to ever claim that title because Jesus is singular. He's singular and he's superior in many ways. And so as we consider the person, first of all, just his name, we're told... We have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens. That's an interesting phrase. We'll come back to that. Jesus, the Son of God. So just we'll camp there for a second. Jesus. Jesus is his name. It's his given name. When Mary was pregnant, the angel of the Lord comes to Mary, actually comes to Mary and to Joseph and tells both of them at different times, Mark chapter 1, Luke chapter 1, and says to them, You're going to have a baby. It's going to be a boy. Don't even worry about looking in the name book. You're going to name him Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. And that's what that name means, Jesus. It's a transliteration for us. You know, it's in Hebrew, it's Yeshua or Yahshua. And it literally just means God saves or Savior. And so when the angel comes and tells Mary and Joseph, you're going to name him Jesus. Why? Well, because he's going to save people from their sins. And so his name in itself identifies his humanity and identifies the whole purpose of why he came to earth, right? Because God loves you. Do you know that? That God loves you. And because he loves you, he sent Christ for you, to live for you, to die for you, that whomsoever would believe on Jesus would be saved, would not perish but have everlasting life. 
The Bible says that there's only one name given under heaven in which we must be saved, Acts chapter 4. And so it's his name that reminds us of who he is. It's his name that reminds us that Jesus was our Savior. And he was a man, he came. Again, and he did what no other priest or person could do. Right? No other priest, no other person, Aaron, no pastor in your life, no chaplain in your life, as, as godly as they are and can be, they cannot save you. I cannot save you. But Jesus can save us. Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 2, 5, as I mentioned earlier, there is one God, one mediator between God and man, and that is the man Jesus Christ who gave himself a ransom for all. Gang, I pray that we'd understand this. And here's the part I want to focus on, on, focus in on. Notice the writer says, seeing then we have a great high priest. Understand that the priesthood was given to the children of Israel, but now because of Christ, we have, everyone has, we, it's possessive. We have Jesus because God has given us Jesus. And in his person and in his humanity, he identifies with us, but also we get to identify with him. And so let me just phrase it this way. This morning, can you say that? Can you say that you have Jesus as your high priest? Can you say that you have Jesus as your Lord, as your Savior? That really is the most important question to answer. It speaks of relationship. And it speaks of intimacy. You know, sometimes I can tell where I stand in a person's life by the way they introduce me to somebody. And it's not, I'm not offended by it, just so you know, if you're like, oh, no, I never introduced Rick that way. Sometimes I'll just say, oh, this is Rick. And I'm like, yep, yeah, that's me. Hi, nice to meet you. But now I don't know how to greet people these days, right? How do we greet each other? You know, like, you know, nice to meet you. Sometimes they'll say, oh, this is the pastor of the church at, at Calvary. I'm like, oh, okay, that's how you see me. <laughs> you know? And then there's times where people are like, oh, this is my pastor, this is the pastor at my church, and I'm like, yes, it's our church. The best greeting is, hey, this is my very good-looking pastor who I can't believe he's not a model. I've never been introduced that way, but uh, that would be the best one. There's a depth, right? There's there's an intimacy and identity when you claim somebody is yours, right? Well, Blake's my friend, and Nicola's my sister in the Lord, and Right? When we, we make identity, like you claim something, there, there's an intimacy there. Of course, we, you know, this is my wife, and those are my kids, unless they're misbehaving. Those are Christie's kids. Right? Yeah. So when it comes to then our faith in the Lord, listen, it, we have a great high priest. And can we say that? Can you say that this is my Jesus, and he is my Savior, and he is your high priest? His name identifies with his humanity. He wants to connect with us on that level. Of course, he did something that no other man can do. We're going to read in a little bit that he was without sin. But what else identifies him? Not just his name identifies him, but we're told plainly, Jesus, the Son of God. And so here we have in just one little section, one little title, both his humanity and his deity. Christianity 101, Jesus is fully man and he is fully God. And we're reminded of his deity. And because of that, because he's fully man and he's fully God, once again, it makes him unique. 
it makes him superior. He makes him greater to Aaron. As great as Aaron was to them and what he did in that function of the priesthood, Christ is much greater than that. Because the priesthood, by design, was God said, I want you to represent me to the people, and the priest was going to represent the people to God. But that couldn't be done perfectly, right? That's an imperfect representation. And yet, because Jesus is fully man, and he because he's fully God, he is uniquely qualified to represent man to God and properly and fully represent God to man. Jesus would tell the disciples, if you've seen me, then you've seen the Father. And once again, no other pastor, no other priest, no other chaplain can do that. As best as we try, as much as we want. Why? Because everybody else is flawed in their humanity. Every single one of us is inadequate and insufficient. We are not the best representation of God's love, God's kindness, God's goodness, his mercy, and his grace. I mean, even for Aaron, Aaron, Moses blew it. Moses got a little angry and struck the rock when God said, speak to it. And even Aaron, you know Aaron's story? I mean, it's not soon after God ordains this guy that he messes up. And even prior to that, he didn't have the greatest resume I mean, even when Moses goes up to the mountain to get the Ten Commandments, you remember what happens? He comes down and Aaron, Aaron has led the people in worshiping this golden calf. You guys remember that scene? And I, I kind of, I, I find it funny, even Aaron has the lamest excuse. Moses is like, what did you do? He's like, I don't know. Everyone gave me their gold earrings. I threw it in the fire and out popped this calf. This is amazing, a miracle. You're like, come on, bro. You made that thing, right? And yet God in his grace still chose Aaron. In fact, you go through the priesthood that is described in the Old Testament, it reads like a soap opera. I mean, it's only one generation later that the thing gets derailed. Aaron's own sons, Nadab and Abihu, you know what happened with them? I mean, they got so bad that God said, I'm done. Didn't even put them in the corner, the Lord killed them. That's only, that's Aaron's kids. It didn't take very long. In fact, when you get to the end, right, as far as the Old Testament, you realize that much of the warning and the heartache that God is experiencing is because the priests who are supposed to be good shepherds for the people have led the people into idolatry. And God basically says, I don't have a shepherd after my own heart. They have led the people astray. See, people are flawed. The problem is sinful man. The priesthood, the high priesthood, in fact, was flawed because men are flawed. But Jesus isn't flawed. Verse 15 says, we have this high priest. He can sympathize with us, even in our weaknesses. And yet, in all points, he was tempted, yet without sin. Yet without sin. See, he came as a man that we could relate to him and he could relate to us to understand that that when the things that we go through and the hard things that we go through and there's hard things you will go through. And yet Jesus was tempted just like we are. The difference, though, is that unlike us, he didn't give in to that temptation. He remained unswayed, unmoved, untouched. 
Now, sometimes we look at that and think, oh, how can Jesus relate to me? Like, I, I blow it. I mess up all the time. When the Lord identifies with us, even in our weaknesses, you understand that he, he fully understands what it means to be tempted and tested and tried. He understands the real power, the temptations that come our way. And guess what? Even when we do blow it, there's still grace there, right? The Bible says where sin abounds, grace abounds the greater. Sometimes we make the mistake to think that God doesn't really understand my weaknesses and my struggles and my stresses and my frustrations, my worries, my tendency to get angry quickly, covet things. Please understand that the Lord knows exactly, and yet God still loves you. Seeing as humanity fully understands. And I would even say that he understands more of the full force of temptation. Sometimes we don't even really appreciate the full force of temptation. That, that verse that says, or that, that phrase that says, that he was tempted in all points, the idea is that every possible temptation he experienced in some way. Now, we don't read that he you know, experienced all these things, but the idea is he experienced the max of temptation. See, each of us can be tempted and tested by different things in our life at various seasons in our life. And it may not be a temptation for you, it's a temptation for me or vice versa. For example, I, I'm really not tempted by alcohol. Like some of you might be, I have friends that are like, ooh, that, that's not for me. But you put a big chocolate cake in front of me with a big large glass of cold milk, then yeah, that's a temptation for me. See, for Jesus, he can relate to every single one of those temptations. Not that he was tempted by, you know, drinking too much beer. And he certainly, we're not going to read chapter and verse where he's tempted by a chocolate cake. But the idea of being tempted at all points means that he experienced the max level of temptation. The best way I can think of to describe this is, think of it this way. Some of you, or I don't know if some of you, imagine if you could, maybe that's better, that if you could bench press a thousand kilograms, right, two thousand two hundred pounds, can any of you can any of you do that? Right, we think that that's incredible. So if you could do that, and then I said, "Oh, can you help me? I'm trying to lift weights with this three kilogram dumbbell." Right, the three kilogram dumbbell for you is nothing. You can, you know, you can do a thousand kilograms. So if I hand you three kilograms, you're going to be like, this, this is nothing. But at the same time, you'll still understand what it means to be under the strain of weight. Even though it's a lesser weight, right? It's a lesser weight for me, but for you, you have you're experienced a greater weight. See, that's Jesus. He's experienced the greatest weight. He understands the fullness of what it means to be tempted in every point. We struggle with the smaller stuff. But it doesn't mean he can't relate to you. It doesn't mean that he can't understand what you're going through. And it certainly doesn't mean that he can't sympathize because the scripture says he can. Let me just say it this way. Listen, Jesus understands exactly what you're going through. Your heartache, your temptations, your frustrations, any and all of it. And guess what? He can handle it. And it's not an application that's listed here, but I mean, just add this. He invites you then to cast your cares upon him. Give him the weight. Because he wants to carry it for you. Do- Dr. Nick, who's part of our church, um, 
shared with me this little excerpt from a book he's reading called Gentle and Lowly. And the author of the book, I don't know the guy's name, I apologize, but references this particular verse. And Nick shared a page for me. And it just, I couldn't do any better. So I'm going to just give you the Reader's Digest version of it. So it quote, it says, This verse speaks to the sheer solidarity of Jesus Christ with his people. And all of our natural intuitions tell us that Jesus is with us when life is going great. And I agree with that statement. You know, we often say, man, the Lord's blessing me. God's with me. The good hand of my God is upon me. And he says that this text tells us the exact opposite. That it is in our weaknesses that Christ sympathizes with us. And that word sympathize, it means to suffer with. And so in your pain, guess what? Jesus is pained. And in your suffering, the Lord experiences that suffering as his own. It's his own nature and his humanity that he can then identify with us. And he engages us then in our troubles. And so his is a love that cannot be held back when he sees you in pain. Close quote. I fully agree with that. And so we're to consider the person of Christ. The fact that he came as a, as a man. He represents us to the Lord and the Lord to us perfectly. Well, we'll also consider his position. We've already touched upon it. It's, just tell us, told, it's told to us plainly there. We have a great high priest. But notice this little phrase that he adds. He says, we have the great high priest who's passed through the heavens. That's an interesting phrase. Who's passed through the heavens. What does that mean? I want to suggest to you that what the writer is going to do from this chapter 5 and 6 and 7 is he's going to lay out uh, a contrast between the, the priesthood that got established through Aaron and the Levites and then Jesus as our great high priest. It's going to be a comparison and a contrast. At the end of the, his conclusion, he's going to basically say, there's no contest, though. You can compare them, you can contrast them, but there's no contest. Jesus wins. He's greater. He's better. You can't beat that. But in this parallel, there's these beautiful little... Um, what's the word I want to look for? I guess hidden, hidden things that I want to share a couple of them with. This phrase, he's passed through the heavens. So I believe the parallel is that this picture of the Old Testament priests, for them, when they ministered on your behalf, if we lived in the Old Testament times, is they would have to pass through various barriers, curtains that God had established when he gave the blueprint to Moses for the tabernacle and Solomon, well, David and Solomon for the temple. There's an outer court that everyone can go into. Then there was a smaller court where only the Jews could go into, uh, including women. And then there's another court where only the guys could go into. And then there was a place called the holy place where only the Levites and the priests were allowed to go into. This inner chamber and there was the, you know, most of the furniture that God had arranged the, the holy place with. You'd find the golden menorah there and the table of showbread and table of incense. And that's where, you know, worship took place. But yet there was yet a smaller inner chamber called the Holy of Holies. 
And no one was allowed to go in there except for the high priest and only once a year. In the Holy of Holies was only one piece of furniture. Do you guys know what it was? For a thousand points? The Ark. Very good. Different movie, right? Raiders of the Lost Ark. The Ark of the Covenant. The Old Testament tells us that it was a wooden box overlaid with gold. It had a cover on it, and on this cover it had um, pole rings and, and poles that would be used to carry it. And on the lid of it had these two angels that would, in a sense, be facing, well, oriented towards each other with wings that would touch tip to tip, and their face would be facing down towards the lid of the box, which is called the mercy seat. And that was the Ark of the Covenant. That's the only thing that sat inside the Holy of Holies. And inside the Ark of the Covenant were originally two things. It was the Ten Commandments, the tablets that Moses brought, and Aaron's rod, which had blood, blooded, budded, sorry, bloomed. And so they put that in there, and that was the, the sign that God had chosen Aaron. And then later on, a bowl of manna was added. Those are the only things in the ark, and it sat in the Holy of Holies. And once a year, the high priest, on a, on a day called the Day of Atonement, or Yom Kippur, was then allowed to go into the Holy of Holies, and there they would sprinkle the blood of the sacrifices on the top of this ark, on the mercy seat. And by the way, the writer is going to come back to this and develop this whole theme for us in chapters 8 and 9, and it's pretty, it's, it's amazing. I mean, even the ark in itself is a picture of the gospel in Christ because inside was, right, the law. And yet on top of it was the mercy seat that covered the law and the blood of the sacrifice that covered all of it. And that's what Jesus did for us. Now, the high priest, when he went in, before he went in, though, he had to ceremonially wash. He had to, like I mentioned earlier, he had to get in line and make sacrifice for himself because he's not perfect. He has to atone for his own sins first. And, and God even said, if you come into my presence and you're not right with me, you're done. And part of the garments of the high priest, the bottom of his uh, robe were um, bells were sewn into the hem, hem of his garment. And so kind of odd when he walked around. And the, I couldn't remember, the, I didn't know the sound that bells made for a service. Jingle. Jingle. Jingle bells. They would... They would jingle, and so the people could hear, okay, the, you know, the high priest is on the move, jingle, jingle. Right? Now, there, maybe you've heard this before, like some, some teachers will say that because they would go into the Holy of Holies, and if you weren't right, God would strike you dead, and no one else would go in there, they would tie a rope around the high priest's leg. You're not going to find that in chapter and verse, it's just, it's a... It's tradition, I don't know, it's folklore. Maybe it happened, I don't know, maybe it didn't. But they'd say they tied a rope around his leg and if he fell dead, they'd just pull him out. Okay. My point being, though, is that the high priest, though, when they went in, he had to pass through these barriers. He had to be right for the, before the Lord. And, and we know what, the Bible tells us that the, the glory of God would dwell above the mercy seat. It's called the kabod. Often, often represent, often, oh man, I can't speak, often represented by a cloud, like a thickness. 
and the priest couldn't linger long because it's the holiness of God. Right? Some of you like to linger long at church. Right? Your kids are in the car. Let's go. You know. This is the opposite. You didn't want to linger long inside the, the holy of holies. Now here's the thing. The high priest, as soon as he was done making atonement for the sacrifices, for the sins of himself and the whole nation, he came out. Guess what? He had to do it again the next year and every year after that. It was a perpetual thing. Why? Because him and the rest of the nation, they sinned. It's like, it's like your dishes. They're never done. Right? It's like laundry. You're wearing the clothes. You still got to wash it. And yet when Jesus did it, right, he did it in a greater way. One sacrifice, the Lamb of God without any blemish, perfect, complete. Oh, this is in my notes. So we don't have third service. You guys ready? Beautiful picture. In chapter 8, you read the same imagery. And he, our high priest, sat down at the right hand of the majesty in, in the heavens. The picture of Jesus as our high priest sitting down, unlike the high priest who has to come in and out every year with bells on, continually working, right? It reminds us of the earlier part where it says, and God has rested. Jesus rested from the work. No the work of atonement is completed, you guys. That is why when he's on the cross, he cries out, it is finished. It is a picture of him being done He's sitting down at the right hand of the majesty in the heavens. And we've been invited into that. See, Jesus, as our high priest, consider his position. He's greater than Aaron. He's greater than the priesthood. And he doesn't pass through the earthly curtains. He passes through the heavens. Later on, the writer of Hebrews is going to tell us that the earthly things are copies. They are a model, a temporary model of the things that are going on in heaven. It's a glorious picture. And here I'd add this. I would add to you and I would contend with you that God ended the Levitical and Aaronic priesthood. That it was completed when Jesus entered in. See, the day that Jesus died, we're told in, in uh, Matthew chapter 27 that at the exact moment this darkness fills the earth, an earthquake happens, and something happens in the temple. You guys know what happens in the temple? Yeah, someone said it, right? The curtain of the holy, it gets ripped in two, and it gets ripped in two from top to bottom. And I believe it's a beautiful imagery of God himself ripping that curtain. No longer is there a barrier. Because Jesus, who is our sacrifice, our high priest, great high priest and lamb, has opened the way. Now every single one of us can come before the Lord. We don't need an intermediate anymore. Access is open. There's this other interesting image or scene that happens. It's, it's this Matthew as well, but it's one chapter earlier. Jesus is standing before the religious council. The high priest is there. And they begin to question him and they ask him, are you really the son of God? And Jesus says back to them, is it, it is as you say. When they hear that, they go crazy. 
They're like, what more do we need to hear? We're going to kill this guy. We're going to crucify him. He's claiming to be God. And then we read something interesting. We read that the high priest tears his garment. Now, in the Old Testament, tearing of your garment was a, a cultural thing. It was a custom thing. When you're grieving, you're angry, you're, you're mourning, it was okay. You, t- you know, you have to get new clothes, but you would tear your garment. Only one person that was not allowed to tear their garment. In Leviticus chapter 21, we read that the high priest shall not do that. It was forbidden. And yet we find this scene. As soon as Jesus says, yes, I am the son of God, the high priest tears his garment. And to me, it flashes the scene of when, remember, Saul, King Saul, would tear his garment. And then Samuel tells him, and God has taken the kingship out of your hands and given it to another I think these are these scenes of God saying the Levitical and Aaron priesthood, it's come to a close. Peter, I believe, picks up the same thing in 1 Peter chapter 2, and he describes us, and he says, you know, God's chosen you, and he gives these interesting descriptors, and one of them is as a royal priesthood. So we get to then minister to the Lord. We get to be... right. Later on, we're going to read that we're to present our very lives as a living sacrifice. Oh, sorry, Yoko. That was not on my notes at all. Listen, in light of this powerful truth and and the person of Christ and the position of Christ, what are we told to do? We have two applications here. The first is found in verse 14. We're to hold fast to our confession. I'm running out of time. Let me just summarize it this way. You ready? Don't let go of what you know for what you don't know. That's what it basically means. Confession means to say the same thing. Who are we saying the same thing about or to? We're saying the same thing that God says. Sometimes we can go through things and our experience seems to contradict what we know. God is a God of love. He's a God of goodness. Then why am I hurting? Why is this happening to me? Why am I feeling this pain? If God loves me and God is gracious... I don't feel that way right now. And sometimes we'll let go of what we know that God is good and God is loving and God is gracious. And because we're experiencing something that seems to contradict what we know. Can I say this in love? Don't let go of what you know for what you don't know. And so if God says, my plans and purposes for you are good to give you a future and a hope, then we say the same thing. Lord, you love me. And yes, I'm hurting, I'm confused, I don't understand right now, but you're greater than me. Your thoughts aren't mine. They're greater than my thoughts. We confess the same thing that God says. The second and last, number three, is to consider our privilege. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and help in our time of need. This is the a big one, guys. Here it is. Ready? Without hesitation, you and I can go to God anytime, anywhere, for any need. Under the Old Testament priesthood, in one way, you had to make an appointment, if you will. You couldn't enter into the presence of God. There was somebody that stood before you. They were the intermediate. They represented God to you, and they would represent you to the Lord. But because of what Jesus did, because of his person and his position, he granted you full access Anytime you want, 24-7, anything you need, you can come before the Lord. That's such a radical concept for the Jew. 
It'd be hard for them to wrap their brain around this. And sometimes for some of us, right, we're, the traditions that we're used to, we're used to having an intermediate. Like I have to go to this particular person. Only that person can represent God and, and God to me. No, listen, the throne of God represents several things. Yes, I think it represents the mercy seat, and we'll talk about that more. But a throne represents power and dominion. It represents authority. And so we understand even today's, right? There's people who are in power and authority. You, can, you normally can't just walk into their office, right? Anybody ever been to Buckingham Palace? Go have tea with the queen? Right? No, generally we can't, right? I've been to Buckingham Palace. I've been to the Emperor's Palace in Tokyo. I didn't go like, hey, you want to go get some ice cream with the emperor? You been to the White House? I've been at the gate of the White House. I even tried to dare Chrissy to jump the gate and see how far she could run before, you know, <laughs> she didn't want to do it, though. Right? You can't go to those places and you go see those people. You'll get arrested or you'll get shot. And yet, think about this. The, the God of all the universe says to you and to me, anytime you want, anything you need, you can come. And guess what? You don't have to come sheepish, sheep. You don't have to come timidly, sheepishly. <laughs> Come boldly. Come with confidence to know that God gave you an invitation. And it is a throne of grace. Now, it's a throne of judgment to others, but it is a throne of grace. You heard that's the way it's been described. Justice is getting what you deserve. You, you're speeding. The cop pulls you over, and you know you're speeding. You're a good Christian, and you don't lie. You're like, yep, I was speeding. I deserve a ticket. That's justice. Mercy is you get pulled over, you're speeding, and the cop says to you, you're speeding, you're like, yeah, I was speeding. He says, okay, well, just slow down. You don't get what you deserve. Grace, though, grace is getting what you don't deserve. Grace looks like this. You're speeding, you get pulled over, you don't get the ticket, and the cop hands you 20 bucks or 2,000 yen and says, here you go, have some ice cream on me, right? (laughs) Like, I am guilty. I just got blessed. That's ridiculous. Yeah, that's grace, right? And that's God to you and to me every day. It's ridiculous, but that's God's grace. He is full of mercy and he is full of grace. And guess what? You'll never exhaust it. It will never run out. And so the writer of Hebrews is trying to tell us, consider our high priest. How awesome is he? He's not like as great as Aaron was. Aaron was a flawed man. He had to stand in line just like everybody else. He didn't represent God perfectly to us, but Jesus does. And not only that, not only does the high priest go into the Holy of Holies for us, Jesus went into the heavens, ripped open the curtain, and ushers all of us in right behind him. Oh, there's the bell. Here's the question. I hope that you know we can, right? Sometimes the question isn't, can we come to him? No, the question is, you can. Here's the question. It's not, can we? The question is, have you? Have you? Have you gone to the one who knows you and loves you? And I had this, knows that you're messed up and jacked up and a sinner, and guess what, loves you anyways. Still, he doesn't revoke the invitation. And that you can still come very boldly to him and find what you need, 
wisdom and grace and mercy and help, perspective, forgiveness. I pray that you would. Amen. Father, thank you so much. Your word's so good. I pray that I pray that we wouldn't neglect this tremendous privilege you've given us of prayer to come before you at any time. We don't need to travel thousands of miles and stand in line at the temple. Jesus, when you hung on a cross and your blood hit planet earth, all the world became an altar. And now we can come at any place, any time to worship you, to seek you, Lord, to remember who you are and what you've done for us. And it's because of you, Lord, you, you have ushered us into the holy place. God, I pray we wouldn't be timid, that we wouldn't think that that's a space that we can't enter. But Lord, you and your grace say, come in. That you want to show us this increasing facet of who you are the depth and the dimension of Christ, his person, all that he is and all that he's done for us, Lord. And God, thank you that we can come. And Lord, I pray, I do pray for anybody here who just been holding on to heavy things in their heart, feeling like they have to carry this burden by themselves, this private pain, this personal struggle. Lord, thank you that you see them and you've invited them. You're asking them to just set it down, to cast their care upon you because you care for them. Lord, thank you for this amazing privilege, blessing and promise. And so, Lord, we want to enter in. We want to enter into the holy place. We love you and we praise you this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray together. Amen.